What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Michael Phillips. Some days my childhood feels so very far away. And others, I can almost see it. The magical land of my youth. Like a beautiful dream of when the whole world felt like a promise. And the lessons that lay ahead yet unseen. Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman speaking for all of us, I think, Michael. That's how you recall your childhood, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I don't recall actually last week, let alone my childhood. But man, what I wouldn't give for Wonder Woman 2021, where she just sort of gets in front of some of these jokers at the Capitol and just then now that would be an opening, you know, much more interesting than a mall, you know, a different hey, well, mall opening. She made it to the White House in Wonder Woman 84, right? So I don't see why the Capitol isn't <laughs> uh, This week, Michael and I will have reviews of Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman 1984 and the new Tom Hanks Western News of the World. It's all going to be a beautiful dream ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. I'm Josh Larson. A happy new year to you, Michael. To you too, Josh. And how is downtown Chicago treating you? It's it, This is your first new year in a new place to live. It yeah? is. Yeah. It's been about six months since we've been down here, but yeah, the first uh, official winter, the weather is pretty much the same as, as in the Chicago suburbs, I'd say in the winter, uh, maybe a little milder down there, a little less wind than there is here, but yeah, we're doing, we're doing well. Thank you very much for filling in this week. I, I'm guessing that Adam is on off really studying his movie trivia. Uh, you were with us, <laughs> Michael, at last weekend's trivia spotting contest. His team, I'm afraid, didn't fare too well. And so I imagine he's he's out there studying, getting ready for our next show. How, how did your team fare? Remind me. You know, I've been such a, you know, I won once, you know, hey. so, so many weeks ago now, and I've never come close since. And I have to blame, you know, all my teammates, honestly. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I wanted to stack the deck so that all my incredible lack of knowledge on the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe mm. and uh, basically most of the Star Wars stuff would be plugged in by some of my cohorts, yes, but no, yes. no. <laughs> well, I've only won once as well, and I'm going to credit my teammates for that. As as you saw this last weekend, I'm, I can tease Adam, but I failed spectacularly in the lightning round. I couldn't even pull the title of It's a Wonderful Life out of my hat, <laughs> given the clue Bedford Falls. And, and of course, it's a lightning round, so everybody's watching. It's live. And it was a face plant. I'll, I'll just say, I don't know if you've experienced this during trivia spotting, but for those answers that are obvious, I find there's like a millisecond window where your brain knows it. And if you don't blurt it out, that window shuts and it's, it's just gone. That's right. It's, it's, no, it's honestly no different. I did just enough bad college theater to know, you know, it's just like forgetting your line. <laughs> it's, there is nothing in the world. You can't muscle it into existence if it's not there. You know. <laughs> so yeah, if anyone wants to see me regularly embarrass myself, please do join us for our next trivia spotting event that's uh, available to our film spotting family members on Patreon. So it is a new year, Michael. 
Even more than most, though, I think these first couple of weeks of 2021 are still very much stuck in the year 2020. The Oscars, they've been pushed back from February to April this year. And so several high-profile titles are still coming to theaters. Um, the eligibility window has been opened, so we have movies opening now that'll be considered for Oscars. They're also coming on demand. Regina King's One Night in Miami, that's one that's coming to Prime Video this weekend. It made Adam's top 10 list. of the Yeah, it's really good. Really good, yeah. Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, I think you like this one even better, Michael. This was on your top 10. Really, 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 really good. That one's coming out in February. And then we have Oscar hopefuls like The Father with Anthony Hopkins and Minari with Stephen Yun. Those are both coming out in February as well. Now this week, we've got reviews of a couple of films that many people are probably still catching up with. Wonder Woman 1984, that came to theaters and notably same day, HBO Max on Christmas Day. Probably safe to say the discourse on that one has had its moment in the film Twitter bubble, but we have not had a chance to weigh in yet on the show. So we're going to get to Wonder Woman 1984 a bit later. First, though, another Christmas Day release that makes its on-demand debut this weekend. It's News of the World, directed by Paul Greengrass and starring Tom Hanks. News of the World is adapted from the 2016 novel by Paulette Giles. Let's hear some of the trailer. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, and I'm here tonight to read the news from across this great world of ours. So they pay you to tell stories. I ain't never heard of that as a thing a man can do. Well, it's not a rich man's occupation, as you can see. Hey! Stop! Stop! I'm not gonna hurt you! Do you understand English? Sorry, I call that, uh... Friend. It says your name is Joanna Leonberger. Indians took you when they attacked your family six years prior. The mother, father, and sister were. Well, they passed. It is a strange world, Michael, when a Tom Hanks Western directed by Paul Greengrass, who worked with Hanks on Captain Phillips after directing three of the Jason Bourne films, gets lost in the shuffle. But that's pretty much what's happened with News of the World. There's been little talk of it since it did open in theaters, some theaters on Christmas Day. It does come to streaming services, as we mentioned this weekend. Set shortly after the Civil War, the movie stars Hanks as Jefferson Kidd, a printer who lost his business in the war and now travels from town to town reading newspapers aloud to gathered paying audiences. On his journey, he comes across a young German girl, played by Helena Zengel, who was kidnapped as a baby by a Kiowa tribe and rescued years later by Union soldiers. Kidd is charged with returning her to her surviving relatives, but she'd rather return to the Kiowa, the only family she's ever known. That's the central narrative, but it's safe to say that's not what's most compelling about news of the world, at least right now, Michael. When you and I were discussing some of the titles for possible review on the show, you leaned toward news of the world, saying this. It would feed naturally into talking about how we get our news and what the news has been lately. Having now seen it, I'm pretty sure I know what you were getting at, but I'd love to have you explain, and I'm eager to hear if you think this topicality is to the movie's credit or to its detriment. Well, <laughs> you know, when you talk about any movie or anything you, that's worth talking about in the culture, you, you have to respond to the times you're living in. And that doesn't mean that everything gets bent 
toward this particular historical melee we're in right now. I mean, it's 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 just sort of stunning how distracting everything in the world, in our country at least, is is crowding out so much of our headspace uh, for anything else. And it's um, it, it, I, I think I think. What's going on in News of the World, at least uh, as Greengrass co-wrote it and directed it, is you have you have a film that's speaking, I think, directly, although not too bluntly, uh, to certain strains in the American spirit and the American sort of rugged individualism Western ethos. You know, you have a, a guy like uh, the Tom Hanks character. A kid who's a Civil War veteran. Um, uh, this this film takes place uh, right around the same time as John Ford's The Searchers. It's uh, it's Texas in 1870. The Searchers was two years earlier, and you have a very similar plotline, right? You have essentially, if you want to boil it down to the utter simplicity, you have you have an Anglo older white male who wants to you know who ends up um, rescuing. Uh, and saving, I guess, with quotes around it, uh, a young girl from the clutches (laughs) or the life she's known uh, living amongst the Native American tribes, the Comanche and the Searchers and the Kiowa here in this story. Along the way in this film, Kid is the opposite of the John Wayne character in The Searchers. He's a kind of a gentle, warm, humanist, slightly anachronistic, maybe massively anachronistic (laughs) lens through which we experience the story and these particular times and places, which are actually very well researched, especially in the novel. Um, And, you know, well enough, well enough handled, I think, in the film, although I have huge problems with the film. We will get to shortly. But uh, um, in one segment of the film, and and this is a film of a very episodic film, a very simple kind of journey film where uh, Hank and uh, Johanna, played by uh, Helena Zengel, are, are trying to head to uh, the aunt and uncle who live in San Antonio, and they run into, in, in the scene, uh, a group of secession-minded America firsters, let's call them, and mm-hmm. their entire impetus is just to kind of rid the land of everybody who doesn't look like them. You know, there's a, there's a line about, you know, we're building a whole new world here. We've got to clean out the Mexicans and the Indians, and, and at one point, um, the the mayor of this the sort of unofficial mayor of this this community says you got no idea what we deal with down here Mexicans blacks Indians you know it's it's just you know uh, ham blunt uh, bluntly expressed sort of racist ideology right um, now in the searchers of course Ethan played by John Wayne is the one you could level that charge to although the film right. the film's strength I guess eternally the searchers is that is that it's interestingly conflicted about the John Wayne character all the way mm-hmm. through. Uh, that's what gives the movie its tension. And despite um, it being kind of a slightly cringy affair in many of the details, why it's still kind of a major work of American popular art, you know? Yeah, um, I agree. Anyway, that's what, what does all this say to where we are right now? Yeah. You know, I think, I think it's just, it's a course talking in, in some way it's having a conversation with, uh, the the people we saw last week at the Capitol, the, uh, which are more than one type of person, more than one type of grievance, more than one type of, um, you know, 
people that we we stereotype at our peril, but but they did what they did, and they're doing what they're doing, and they voted who they voted for. And mm-hmm. this is why it's just sort of a reminder that you know the American experiment is is you know was was mythologized and beloved by uh the early movies the early westerns and westerns today and i think what greengrass and this film news of the world is doing really is trying to trying to take another look at uh you know our better our better natures and our worst natures and, you know, can they coexist? And, but the, the question for, I think for us, Josh is, you know, do you believe it in this film? Can you right. believe the Tom Hanks characters journey and his character in particular? And does it seem like a pleasant fiction and anachronism you just have mm. to kind of live with, or is it actually wholly convincing? That's the question for us. I think you're so right that this movie um, wants to speak to some in that crowd at the Capitol last week, uh, if not specifically because the filmmakers obviously could not have predicted that. But um, I think it hopes and believes that it can speak to that crowd watching the movie in light of those events. I, I find it naive and I find it um, a work of wish fulfillment. And that's not entirely fair to the film. If I had seen it six months earlier and maybe I was in a more hopeful mood, I might've been um, more convinced. There, There's another scene, Michael, in addition earlier than the one you talk about um, where kid is again in Texas, giving a report, reading the newspaper to this crowd. And the report he has to give is grants orders that Texas comply with the newly ratified 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the Constitution. So he's reading this news and the crowd gets angry. Um, You know, very similar uh, to the crowd that you describe who appears later in the film. They're jeering kid. They're threatening. There are some Union soldiers at the back of the room. They turn around and threaten those soldiers. And it, it gets to be this combustible moment. Hank stands up as kid and gives this lovely Hanksian speech about these being difficult times and the tension falls. He, he manages to calm them. And again, I'm watching this scene less than a week after we had what happened happen at the Capitol, where we have mega traders with, you know, a similar mindset, um, aggrieved because um, their dear leader was voted out. Um, they're on the wrong side of history now and not willing to accept it. And what's the result, right? The desecration of the building, five deaths. So I'm watching this scene in News of the World and and feeling like, man, you know, if Tom Hanks was on those Capitol steps, from what I've seen, from the reports I've read, he would have been trampled. Um, <laughs> and it felt a little, it just felt a little hollow. And, and to see a movie believing and again it's not the movie's fault it's more about the place we're at and the reality that has been shown to us i i I disagree that it's not the movie's fault but i'm sorry keep going and then i'll tell you why well no i think maybe that's an interesting point of contention maybe that's why overall i am slightly positive on the film because i do want to be able to step back from the present moment and say um you know if it isn't speaking exactly to these seven days, maybe how is it maybe just as a work of art aside from this element? Because as I said, the the plot with um, the, the young girl is the main narrative of the story. So that's what it's mostly really interested in. Um, so how might that work? How might that not work? But, but at least for me, in the light of this week, I felt these scenes of Hanks kind of just being able... And it's interesting, Michael, I just saw today, Tom Hanks is going to host a televised special 
on Inauguration Day leading up to Biden's inauguration. And and he's kind of this figure. Yeah, there's going to be like musical performances and he's hosting that. And so he's chosen because the same reason he's chosen for this film, right? Or he wants to be in this film is he's Tom Hanks. He can bring us all together. Um, But we're in the light of realizing that might not be possible. And so Hanks' speeches aren't going to cut it in real life. And for me, they didn't seem to cut it in this movie. Yeah. Okay. So this is the thing. I think, I think that's, I actually hadn't heard that Hank's Biden thing. So that's fascinating. Uh, my God, every day of the next 10 is just going to be like, you know, oh, man. A, a cliffhanger, but, um, yeah, here's the, here's, it's a small detail, but, I, but whether or not you believe that moment that he would actually offer up kind of a gently scoldy reminder of the, of the evils of lynching to this particular crowd, in Texas in 1870, you know, are, are you really going to believe that a, a, a character who's eking out a modest living as a newsreader, reading the newspapers, the stories from local papers and from all over the place to, you know, a new crowd every night, uh, but, but, but all in Texas uh, and an angry bunch, uh, you know, s- struggling to survive in general, would, would he really take that time to give the you know, the Frank Capra speech at that point. I mean, shouldn't, mm-hmm. shouldn't maybe you try to earn that as a story at, you know, after a, a little more happens, <laughs> you know, and it, it just, yeah. that's what I find that, you know, I don't want to be the realism cop on this, but you know, it, it, it just seems like it's, it's just got that liberal humanist, uh, impulse that I, I love. And I don't know if I believe in this mm. particular historical context. So that's, mm-hmm. it's, it, weakness and i'm surprised frankly that paul greengrass didn't see through it you know i mean he co-wrote it and the novel which is very spare but has all these impulses in it from from what i from little i've read of it um it's not like greengrass added these attitudes or or reshaped the character entirely or anything but uh, you know what greengrass i you can count on in all his best work you know, the Bourne films, uh, earlier on Bl- Bloody Sunday, um, United 93 is really kind of cutting through the crap and, and just, and, and, and the best of Captain Phillips his previous, as you mentioned, his previous collaboration with Hanks and that's Hanks is, you know, oh, tr- truest, one of his best. I mean, that breakdown scene is yep. stunning work and not just because he cries, but you know, because it's just, it's a matter of kind of a cumulative dramatic build to it and and that's what i don't get here i guess i guess Mm -hmm. he's just you know i I don't know if any of these texans would give this guy a second if if he if he lectured him on like you know oh don't worry black people are people too and you know none of of it really feels dramatically authentic to me and um much as i enjoyed the performances and it's certainly not a hard movie to watch. And especially among all the dad movies, you can just sit home and stream <laughs> these days. Um, you know, if you're just if you're just wrapping up Tom Hanks and Greyhound, you can just sort of move on over to Tom Hanks and News of the World. But you know, good actor all and 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 uh, you know, not all big movie stars, Josh, are good actors. Uh, but uh, but he really is. And I just wish this movie were had a little more kind of a little more um, authentic human complication to it but you know i feel that way about so many westerns and i just have a huge huge kind of like block in my mind and kind of a chip on my shoulder about a lot of western mythology as as recycled by the movies 
Well, I think I certainly don't think you could consider this a revisionist Western, which maybe is the kind that that uh, speaks to some of those things you're more interested in. So you hit on a couple things there. I want I want us to spend some time on Hanks, his performance, and Greengrass as a director. First, just to to wrap up what we started with, I agree with you. The scene that you highlighted, which does come later in this kind of lawless town. I think that would ring false to me if I had seen this 10 years ago. Um, I think you're right in criticizing how that is set up um, and how it's how it's staged and dramatized. It's, it just isn't believable that he would be successful in that situation. Um, Greengrass as director. So, um, yeah, I, I've liked much of his stuff quite a bit. And I think it speaks the fact that this movie seems out of step with this current month. I think that speaks to how quickly things have moved, even in the last year or whenever this film was first in development um, and and the the dramatic place we've come to in this country. Now, there will be others, especially those who have monitored um, right wing extremism for years, um, people of color who have been saying, you know, white supremacy has been alive and well my entire life. And those of us who don't have to live with its effects are maybe naive to it in ways that they're not. So this isn't like something that is taking the country completely by surprise. But I think things have certainly escalated in a way um, in the time that something like News of the World was conceived as a film project and released. Um, And so that liberal impulse that maybe drove the project at the beginning that you can see in Greengrass's films and in a lot of Hank's films too, does feel out of step with the, um, the really violent extreme reality we're facing right now. Um, now that's, you know, Greengrass in terms of ideology, what did you make of his work here just aesthetically? Because he's a filmmaker who's obviously, you know, because of the Bourne films and something like United 93, the handheld aesthetic is attributed to him. Um, maybe this connects with what you said about Westerns because I found this in comparison, almost laconic. It was very much like a, like a traditional Western and, um, it was, you know, well managed, well managed, well handled. It was handsome, but I didn't find it distinctive in the way some of Greengrass's other work did. And maybe that's what held you back a little bit too, because it reminded you of some of these non-questioning westerns you were talking about. Yeah, partly. I, I think it, it's a good question. Enough politics. Let's talk aesthetics. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like it's the. Fir- this is not the first time Paul Greengrass has actually parked a camera or attached it to a sure. gimbal. And, and glided through a couple of shots, which he does, you know, he's respecting a lot of the familiar classical Hollywood techniques uh, applied to not just Westerns, but all kinds of genres. Um, it, it makes sense here. It, it would be it would be a little crazy to kind of, <laughs> you know, maintain or amp up the, you know, the, the faux I'm under attack handheld documentary style of camera work when yeah. you have... A, a script that is really quite neat and tidy and spare and um, straight line all the way, you know, no, no real complications. But uh, I think there is an animating spark missing from some of the filmmaking. It's never slovenly or, or poorly considered. It's just a little anonymous, which is, is you could just say, yes, uh, maybe, maybe more of Greengrass's directorial personality was in the in the handheld camera than we realized although it's used here and not and, and not occasionally but frequently a lot of the longer action sequences 
which are really going to be the bread and butter of this thing if it does find an audience, a streaming audience online. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the, the film is just a series of trials, murderous trials for these two characters as they deal with first a group of, you know, these three skis bags who want to kidnap the young girl and, you know, sell her into prostitution, uh, followed by, you know, an, uh, you know, another, another sort of life and death circumstance of shootout among the sort of the rocks and the hills, yeah, uh, which is a good I, action scene. I will it's say good. The camera yeah, work it, there. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good. I, 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 and when I was looking at the reviews of the novel, which I have not, again, not read completely, um, you know, a lot of people were saying, you know, it was a national book award finalist. Uh, um, but a lot of people sort of had a slightly guilty pleasure angle about the, about the reaction to it. And that it was just kind of like, it's a revenge, it's a series of revenge fantasies, you know, where these two kind of outwit and outkill whoever is trying to get in their path, you know, and, and, and sort of interrupt and reroute this perilous journey. Right. That's it. That's the whole thing. Uh, it harkens back to Charles Portis's novel, true grit, which is of course got two film versions already. And of course the searchers, as I've said, um, uh, the westerns, and this is where it's it's utter prejudice and 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 subjectivity, Josh. The westerns I love are a little more messed up psychologically <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> than this one. I, I find that the Anthony Mann James Stewart westerns, where you have seriously combustible neurotic uh, characters who are just trying to just trying to keep their head on straight and and not die i guess you could say the same here but it from the acting to the writing to as we say this sort of the visual approach is is very steady laconic uh a little i don't want to say prim because it's a pretty violent picture uh but it's 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 at kind of a respectful remove from any serious visual urgency you know um I just wish he had one tenth of what John Ford can do in terms of getting actors and a landscape together. You do feel like while a lot of this was, um, a lot of this film was zazzed up digitally with all kinds Mm -hmm. of digital green screen work and a little more than I like in a Western, but you know, it's, it's still, you got a lot of real actors against real scenery. And I don't know if Greengrass really appreciated the opportunity there. The psychological element you mentioned, I think they try to incorporate that with kid, the Hanks character. Once we start to learn a little bit more, uh, about his past, but it's not really there in the material or I'm going to say in the performance. I mean, you bring up the captain Phillips performance and what, what that role has and what Hanks gives there is a real vulnerability, especially in that breakdown scene. Now, that doesn't mean every film he's going to need a scene like that. But in this instance, you know, this is a guy, there's no surprise in his, these kindly eyes that we feel like we know so well. Hanks is at his most interesting when we think it's not like the guys to go dark or play a villain, but just that there, he's got to be more than the good guy we know he is. And I don't know that news of the world gives us that in terms of how the character is envisioned or, or really performed. It makes little gestures about his past, but, but it really didn't um, make that difference for me that you're talking about. I agree. He, He does not, he does not really behave this character like a man who has seen what he is, what we're told he has seen, which he has seen the horrors of war and it has utterly changed him. And he's got the shakes and everything else, but it's all handled very, very 
you know, no problem. Uh, oh, three more guys I got to kill. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's the storyline is really just calamity to calamity. It's almost like the World War One film, 1917, out west again. And that's another film I thought was really sort of psychologically thin, you know, paper thin. So there's one thing before we leave off with News of the World I did want to run by you is it's it's the major narrative and kind of get your take on how they handled um, really the cultural identity question for this central character, for Johanna, the, the young girl played by Helena Zengel. Because as you said, I think this is where the, the movie is actually more interestingly complicated, even if it doesn't devote maybe enough time to it. But it does recognize um, that this is a girl, uh, again, taken by the Kiowa as a baby, her birth family murdered, uh, raised for years by the tribes. So she understands them as her family. But then Union soldiers come, kill the Kiowa, as you said, quote unquote, rescue her. And now they try to bring her back to relatives. And so this is a girl who, what should her what should we be rooting for is is an interesting question as you're watching this film in terms of her cultural identity. And I think there's maybe the best scene in the film is where there's a dust storm um, that separates Kid and um, Johanna. And in the dust storm, he can see off in the distance that she has met with, we're assuming, members of the Kiowa tribe who are passing by. And we just see them in the background. Another criticism of this film might be that we don't get enough Native American characters with real agency. There are only two instances, I think, where they are off in the background. But in this one, it's just a nice visual representation of that central question. As they're kind of lost in this dust storm, no one can really see, but she does connect with this tribe. I think they give her a horse um, that allows them to make it to the next step in their journey. Um, And so I'm just curious what you made of that whole element, because it really is, you know, a major element of the film, even though if we've been spending more time on other ones. Yeah, it is. And, and we should, we should definitely keep that in the foreground because that is, that's sort of the emotional hook, right? I mean, and, and your heart and the film is not, again, it's not bad. I just, it's disappointing given that who made it, I think. Um, I think this is where it does feel as authentic the word. I don't know. It feels more v- dramatically vital in that you have, um, you know, a historically grounded example of somebody who's been orphaned twice, as somebody says in the film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're, you're essentially um, you're sort of taking the, the idea at the core of the searchers and, and, and taking a left turn with it. And, okay, what, what, would, be, what would it be like to be that, f- f- that dislocated from two, uh, the only homes you've ever known, the only families you've ever known twice, and you, the film may only hint at sort of the emotional turmoil within this young girl. Um, I wish I wish it got a little messier with that, frankly. And I wish I, w- I wish uh, the plot uh, allowed for a little more, as you say, you know, exploration with that. Because God knows those two actors, Hanks and Zengel, are up to it, uh, and they do kind of relate wonderfully together as actors. And it's it's very familiar material just to see them sort of slowly come together these two completely different characters uh and realize they are you know they are uh, important to each other in ways that you know the plot um, indicates that the plot will be going in that direction yeah. <laughs> i don't want to give it all away but um we have somebody who uh like natalie wood and the searchers is basically saying you know i've this is my family now and then and then 
uh, in the searcher, she's basically kind of told by John Wayne, remember who you are, come back home. And then, you know, there's no decision for that care for the, for the Natalie Wood character to make. It's all being made for her. You know, here, I think at least the news of the world, you get a sense that you have somebody who's really torn in so many different directions. And she's like a, she's like a Dybbuk, you know, she's between two worlds again. Uh, and you know, that's the film. If it works for you, it works for you. If you, if you see the, the bond between the Tom Hanks character and the Helena Zengel character uh, as, as, as real and enough for a movie, then it's there for you. Um, I, I wish, I just wish that it, it had a, a little more uh, unpredictability to it. Uh, is that, is that an, is that a fair you know, comment, do you think? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, no, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's fairly conventional in speaking to that. Um, and this kind of brings us back to what we were talking about at the top when I was discussing wish fulfillment. I think their relationship where it ends is also sort of a gesture towards wish fulfillment that echoes, you know, how the film wants all of these speeches that kid gives to land. So certainly a movie that, uh, you know, had more potential, I think, than it delivers upon and maybe just is going to read differently in this month, this first month of 2021. It will, it will. And, and it may be Josh that in six months from now, uh, uh, there's enough in news of the world that is sort of you know, sidesteps politics or ideology, and it's just simply the story we, we, you know, we're trying to describe, which is just, you know, this man and this young girl trying to make their way through a series of life and death encounters. Um, that's that tends to cut through politics, <laughs> or, and, or maybe Michael in six months, our our liberal humanist hearts will have grown back. I don't. <laughs> One way or the other, <laughs> or or actually, be, or actually, be torn, ripped us uh, out of the chests. You I know, I mean, who knows? Too, <laughs> it's possible. It's by. I'm not saying I would. I would advocate that kind of violence. You know, I love it. How I, I have noticed that every time you hear a politician or a columnist these days say, "I don't advocate violence," but. <laughs> you, you know, they're just about to come up with an apology for a lot of recent behavior that you yeah. have to distrust. So anyway, we mm-hmm. don't want to be those guys. News of the World is currently playing in limited release and available for rent on demand on most platforms. Only one platform, HBO Max, as well as a smattering of theaters, have Wonder Woman 1984. Is it rad? That's how we talked in the 80s, right, Michael? Things were rad. <laughs> they were. I, I couldn't hear you because I had my Walkman on, uh, my Walkman headphones go. on backwards, you know, or something. I don't know. We'll discuss when we come back. Stay with us. So many great moments in Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock, Michael. Specifically, I think we can say so many great music moments. It's kind of an entire music moment all of itself, wouldn't you say? Oh, man, that's that's why I loved it. I mean, it's just, you know, so many people were hit the same way by that one-hour bit of beauty that that film is. I mean, just because it does feel like just one flowing 
you know, set mostly at a house party in London. And, yep. and that's how it felt. It just felt like you were there, uh, which sounds like a pretty uh, obvious, um, you know, a mission for a movie set at a house party to make you feel like you're part of it. But uh, I loved it. I, I really yeah. it's it's still my favorite film last year. Yep, mine too. And I'm sure it's going to come up some more next week when we do get to the show we had planned for this week, our 2020 wrap party. That's where we talk about our favorite movie moments of the year. So we do a music moment, also our funniest moment, our most moving. Also on next week's show, we're going to announce the winner of the 2020 Golden Brick Award. That goes to our favorite film from a new or emerging director. It's not just Adam's favorite film or my favorite film. It's not just your favorite film, Michael. We all, all three of us got to vote for this award, but it's also the listener's favorite film. There's a listener poll that is still live that listeners can vote in. And here's what I want to get, Michael, um, and not to, you know, ask you to influence the poll at all, but I'm going to go through the poll options here Okay. and give me a quick, just real quick thumbs up or thumbs down to each of the golden brick finalists here. The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green. Loved it. Way up. Yeah. That's on your top 10, right? We yep. shared that one. There yep. you go. Below the Man Down, directed by Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy. Enjoyed it. It's more of a silver brick for me. <laughs> okay. Like that. How about Eliza Hittman's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always? Loved it. With a thumb way up on that. The Painter and the Thief by Benjamin uh, Ree. Uh, I I haven't seen it, but uh, even so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it Shattering and Beautiful. <laughs> Okay. I like your critical ethics there. Sound of Metal. <laughs> this is the film by Darius Martyr, Sound of Metal. Where are you on that one? Oh, I like it a great deal. I, I don't. It did not end up on my top 10, but uh, it's got one of my very favorite performances of 2020 from Paul Racy, who won Best Supporting Actor at the National Society of Film Critics. Uh, the only film critics group I'm actually part of. But uh, so that, you know, I, I like I like that pick a lot. Yeah. Two more here. Time, the documentary from Garrett Bradley. Oh, man, it's on the list. I haven't seen it yet, but I will. Okay, fair enough. Pretty sure you've seen this one because you talked about it on our Top 10 Roundtable, The Vast of Night from director Andrew Patterson. Yeah, I talk about it, uh, you know, glowingly. I never saw that either. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I saw it. Uh, no, I like it a great deal. And that's that's the <laughs> that's the movie out of this bunch uh, of the ones I've seen that really uh, – uh, that's the one film that's just driven by uh, – uh, the crying need for a director to just show what he can do with a camera. <laughs> okay. So take that to the poll with you listeners. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. We're going to announce the golden brick winner and we'll share a bunch of your comments next week. Quick note here about some streaming links that we have to give away for the new film, Love and Monsters. This is something we get to do every once in a while here on the show. We love getting free access to our listeners to new films. Love and Monsters is out now on Blu-ray and 4K Ultra HD and digital, certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It stars Dylan O'Brien as a young man who makes a dangerous journey in a monster-infested world to be with the girl of his dreams. If you want to get a chance at one of those streaming links, here's what you have to do. Send a note to feedback at filmspotting.net with the subject line, Love and Monsters. And all you have to do is tell us what is your favorite movie monster? So, you know, Michael, I'm going to ask you this off the top of your head, favorite movie monster. And if you feel like you're in the trivia spotting glare right now and scrambling for a thought, you can always lean back on our movie Manimals top five you and I did together. <laughs> that was a legendary show. Uh, uh, I know you're very proud. 
Yeah, I yeah, I'd probably go from the I, I still I'd still probably single out the chicken woman in in Freaks. That's the one I I, love, I, I still wake up screaming, you know. Um love every that few you remember that you even remember you made that pick. That's great. <laughs> you know it. It's just like the geek, you know, in uh uh in in Nightmare Alley, which we're going to see remade by Guillermo del Toro, right? That's right. More, yeah. A little a little more explicitly than the 1947 Tyrone Power version. But yeah, I love the Manimals. I think, can't we just change this whole name of the show to Manimals Spotting? I mean, you know you know, I'm down, but we might get a little pushback <laughs> from Adam there. Again, Love and Monsters, that's available to buy or rent now. It is rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Quick plug here for our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. They're in the midst of another brilliant pairing. It's the Stairways to Heaven double feature. So they're looking at Pixar's soul alongside Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death. Okay, embarrassing admission time, Michael. I'm taking this opportunity. I love listening to The Next Picture Show, but I always have to have watched the films they're discussing first. I'm taking the opportunity to fill in the blind spot. Yes, that is a matter of life and death. Have never seen it. It's on order from the library, coming my way. Have you lost all faith in me now, knowing that I haven't seen that? Uh, I can't work under these conditions. Look, I I, <laughs> I, I, I saw so much less last year in 2020 for various reasons. I saw so much less old and new stuff than I ever mm. had any other year of my adult life. And, uh, you know, I, I, I give everybody a free pass for last year. And if they haven't caught up with another, although I, I will say it's a damn good pairing they pick up there. That's a great yeah. idea to talk about those two films together. Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. Well, Michael, we've mentioned trivia spotting a couple times already on this show, and that is something that's available to the film spotting family over on Patreon. Patreon is really the main way you can support the show right now. Here's what you get for a mere $5 a month. You have ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live pre-sales and discounts. We do hope to have a live show at some point in 2021. You get a merch discount, you get monthly bonus episodes, and yeah, you get trivia spotting. So last weekend was trivia spotting Revenge of the Sixth. The winning team, as we said, not my team, not your team, Michael, but the team named Second Through Ninth Cow, that was captained, <laughs> captained by Glenn Weldon from NPR and the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. So I think, you know, I'm going to brag. I think my team did tie for second place. We did pretty well, but yeah, we could not take down Glenn. Glenn Weldon. Uh, cow. Yeah, Glenn Weldon, really good. Really good on, on all these things. Yep, yep. It was. It, I love it. And listen, five bucks a month. Uh, I don't know why the hell I haven't uh, become a Patreon. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's, you know, what am I What am I waiting for? For you to go down to 350 out of sheer poverty? No, I don't want that to happen. Well, I have been waiting to see your email pop in as our next subscriber, Michael. So I'm glad to know that's coming. Right. Now, addition to Glenn and you, Michael, we had Next Picture Show's Tasha Robinson joining us for the first time. As we mentioned, Slate's Dana Stevens was able to make it for the first time. Aisha Harris, also from Pop Culture Happy Hour, she was there. Keith Phipps from The Next Picture Show was there. And Griffin Newman from the Blank Check Podcast. All those VIPs, they were captains of a team along with you, Michael. How do you feel about being a captain? Now, we've switched it up a bit. The captains have sometimes been chosen to be 
the people who answer in the lightning round. So you're on camera. You have a few seconds to give an answer. Sometimes the captains are the lifeline. So another player on our team gets to be in the limelight. Do you have a preference? I have a preference that Griffin Newman, who's just astonishingly good at, at, at film trivia, uh, 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 not part- I, I just I, I either don't want him to participate anymore, or I I, I want to be a team captain that mid game abdicates and joins Griffin's team. That's that's <laughs> yeah. all. Those are my two options. We've got to find a way to 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 you know trivia-wise tie one hand behind Griffin's back because <laughs> in some of these categories it really isn't fair but it is always fun and we're going to do it again in February tickets for the February edition of Trivia Spotting those will go on sale soon again available to Film Spotting family members on Patreon to join us go to patreon.com slash film spotting welcome to the future Life is good, but it can be better. And why shouldn't it be? All you need is to want it. Think about finally having everything you always wanted. That's from the trailer for Wonder Woman 1984, director Patty Jenkins' follow-up to Wonder Woman. The first one, that was the number three movie at the box office back in 2017. This sequel takes place, as the title suggests, in 1984, so some 60 years after the World War I set original. In this outing, Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman is reunited with Chris Pine's Steve Trevor and faces new villains, Pedro Pascal's business magnate Maxwell Lord and Kristen Wiig's Cheetah. Now, a few notable critics have been positive on this one, Michael, including Slate critic and trivia spotting contestant Dana Stevens. But overall, this has had a pretty rough reception, I think. One notable pan was in Vulture by friend of the show, Angelica Jade Bastien. This is notable because Angelica joined me on episode 597 of Film Spotting, where we shared our top five women comic book characters done right. One of her picks the animated Wonder Woman that made her list. Here's something from Angelica's Vulture review to get us started. What has attracted me to this character over the years, the femininity of her mythos and how it emphasizes the maternal, how her strength is conveyed in both fight scenes and more emotional exchanges, feels poorly developed in this utter mess of a plot. Superhero films too often rely on mystical items to fuel their narratives, but a magic rock that grants wishes like a gleaming monkey's paw? So yeah, Michael, that that rock is the MacGuffin at the heart of Wonder Woman 1984. Tell me, did the plot, the characters, the action, did anything work for you here? Well, I should first of all, you should uh, I should let you know that um, uh, you can buy a Dreamstone at Brookstone online. So <laughs> Brookstone Brookstone dot com, I think it's expensive, but you know they're cheaper now than they were in December. Uh, yeah, the film got creamed by a lot of uh, by, by a lot of the best critics we have, and and it's and I think I'm coming at it not from a place of hey, wait a minute, lay off. It's really good. I didn't feel that. I did feel that. I'm. I just think this film for me is no better and no worse than just uh, far too many franchise sequels with the number mm-hmm. two at the end. Iron Man two, Thor: The Dark World, which didn't have a two in it. Uh, although the worst of it smelled like number two, but uh, it, it you know the, this film is is no better and no worse than those. And 
I mean, I, I, I have a little tiny bit of perverse curiosity, Josh, that if uh, there were no pandemic right now and Patty Jenkins' sequel uh, were subjected to the massive marketing push and the global launch of uh, a, a theat- traditional theatrical release, um, I, I think the people that really, really did not like Wonder Woman 84 uh, believe that the film would have tanked. And I just think it would have just sort of, you know, shrugged its way to a billion dollars, you know, or, 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 or <laughs> let's say three quarters of a billion as the first one did. And, um, which is a, which is a really good film of its type, uh, the first Wonder Woman. And I, I, I do think that, you know, in a, in a funny way, uh, <laughs> a lot of what we're saying about news of the world, uh, on a slightly, uh, smaller budget, um, and a different intention entirely, uh, maybe, fairly leveled at Patty Jenkins. This does feel a little anonymous behind the camera. It feels like it's all block, you know, superhero mayhem indifferently executed by somebody who, you know, did, is this really the movie that she dreamed of making? I'm not sure she had, it's a peculiar thing, Josh, because she had Jenkins had the, uh, if not the time, then the influence to kind of shape the sequel the way she wanted it. And I do think for an hour, it's a pretty good sequel. I do think. I, I For me, there was a distinct drop-off point where the plot was taken over by Pedro Pascal's, you know, oil magnet and 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 all all the all the BS with the Dreamstone, and it did it did sort of just shoot off into seventeen plot lines at once. None of them very interesting. And I think this is the critical part. Gal Gadot and the character of Wonder Woman herself becomes a very passive victim of plot machinations rather than the driver. And that's just like a Bush league mistake. So we're back, you know, we're talking a little bit the same way we did with news of the world. Some of this comes down to timing and context for this film. I agree. If this had come out, I believe it was originally intended to come out last summer um, or, or maybe it was this winter, but either way, if it had come out traditionally in theaters, I agree. It would have been a huge hit. I don't know that it would have garnered many more positive reviews or even middling ones. I do think this is a pretty weak superhero installment and where you ended up there is the main reason for me. I mean, this movie is two and a half hours long and I, I am not going to subject myself to sitting through it again with a stopwatch, but do you think we got like an, an hour and a half of Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman in this oh, I movie? No, oh, it's crazy. I mean, it's it really un- unbelievable to me because she was the most well-received element of the first film and why you would make a choice to sideline her for this Pedro Pascal character um, who is just, some people have found his performance kind of, you know, um, comedically entertaining, but I, I think it's sort of a flop sweaty take on Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. I have someone I would like you to meet. A pleasure. Oh. Miss Minerva. Uh, it's doctor, actually. Mm. Um, have we met before? You look familiar. Do the thing. Do the thing. Life is good, but it can be better. <laughs> oh my gosh, from TV. Oh my gosh, you're the you're the oil guy. The oil guy. Yeah, I'll right. take it. <laughs> I think it's a little strange that the movie's tone overall is going for Richard Donner's Superman. Um, not because that's a bad move to make. Um, I think that movie Superman handles that tone well, but why would you go from sort of the nobility of the original Wonder Woman to something like silly um, in this sequel? I think that's a miscalculation. Sidelining Gadot is a miscalculation. Um, I agree with you on the filmmaking as well. I mean, there were two 
really standout action sequences in the original Wonder Woman, the opening and the opening battle or the battle that comes fairly early on and then the trenches sequence. And you get nothing like that here. Um, And I have to say, even the action sequences you do get, this was a real test for me watching, you know, through um, HBO Max's screening service. And it was the exact same way I've been watching, speaking of Pedro Pascal, The Mandalorian, the Disney Plus series. So the same TV, the same internet connection, and man, did Wonder Woman 1984 look like a bleary mess, whereas The Mandalorian is crisply envisioned. And one of the things I've appreciated about it is its world building and how distinct that looks even on my home television. No, I agree. Um, and that, that's half of the appeal of The Mandalorian, and I haven't seen all of it. But but just, the, A, they're, they're working with a, a, an interesting array of really good directors, you know, as is as is Patty Jenkins, a, a really good director. But, uh, but The Mandalorian— but The action scenes here— just they don't look the like the quality of of picture the pure quality of picture is not the same and this is you know i think you can demand that that's one of the things you should demand from a, you know a multi-million dollar hollywood production like wonder woman 1984 and i do think it falls on that count too right i will say this too as zach snyder who's i think on board as a producer i, I don't want to be completely no i do i I do want to be completely dismissive of the guy i there's something about Zack snyder's presence on a on a on a on a dc project that spells uh visual chaos and kind of a a heartless you know uh blur of mayhem that it's the opposite of why i go to the movies for uh, for pure action it's just pure visual noise and that's you know i i will stand up for the film to this degree wonder woman 84 that is i think a lot of the actually just sort of the throwaway character stuff is in the uh with with chris pine and godot just sort of like godot introducing uh uh this version of uh her her the love of her life uh to uh, reagan era culture and fashion and fanny packs and malls and all the rest of it i actually found that sort of diverting everything i everything i kind of like about wonder woman 84 is all in that first 45 minutes or hour um but i'll tell you man even uh, even with all the mess that film is in the second half it's still better than every stinking movie Zack snyder ever directed <laughs> Everyone. I, I am glad. I'm glad you can get that off your chest. I, I would agree only to the level that, you know, the Superman, the Batman films he's associated with have a bleakness and a dourness and a darkness and a visual messiness that um, at least this film, there's a brightness to it. You can say that about it. And this ties into the tone, too, that it's going for this lighter tone. So it stands apart for me from some of the Snyder efforts. But I get your point. Um, and it sounds like we both agree that um, a drop-off, significant drop-off from the first Wonder Woman. Absolutely. And, and the best single word I ever heard described it was, was Manola Dargis in the New York Times. who just said that it, it, the plot is janky. And that's exactly what it is. That's what it is. And it's, you know, you can either sort of enjoy some of it despite of it or you or you don't but uh, but it's interesting how many people felt so strongly about like holy moly they have lost their way and so maybe they are going to make a third one so maybe and you know, maybe they'll get it back Wonder Woman 1984 currently in some theaters and also exclusively on HBO Max. All right, so we agreed on that one, Michael. Um, Ish. Slight. I like I like it more than you. I, okay. I, I I think I want I want the record to reflect. 
the record does reflect and slightly more <laughs> probably the re- the reverse on news of the world i liked it slightly more than you which brings us to the end of our show if you want to continue the conversation uh, you can find us on facebook and twitter adam is at film spotting i'm at larson on film and michael i know you're on twitter where can folks find you Phillips Tribune. I mean, I'm just being optimistic in terms of Tribune. We just lost three critics to buyouts this week. The architecture critic Blair came saw and that. Howard Reich, music, longtime music critic, uh, who I will always love, even if he hadn't basically snuck me and my underage son into the Green Mill. Um, <laughs> uh, fantastic guy, and uh, you know, and and the restaurant critic Phil Vitell, who was a long time, tough week. So, but optimistically, I remain Phillips Tribune on Twitter. Boy, I, I know all those critics work well, but I got to say came in as sort of like architecture being a very side thing that I can kind of get obsessed with. Having read him over the years, so lucky to have someone in Chicago doing that sort of work, um, writing about architecture. So, yeah, a real a loss three times over for Chicago journalism this week. I agree, but I will remind all the all the fine, fine film spotting listeners that if you want my children to eat. You will subscribe at least to the cheapo digital, you know, subscription to the Chicago Tribune. My kids are hungry. Thank you. We do want your kids to eat, Michael. And, you know, you you said you're going to join the family on Patreon. I am a Tribune subscriber, so I'm doing my best. I'm doing what I can for you and your children. Thank you. I It's about damn time I join. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In the show archives over at filmspotting.net, if this episode was not enough, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives that go all the way back to 2005. The website is also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We are asking about the Golden Brick. Which Golden Brick nominee should win the 2020 award? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter opening this week on digital as we mentioned news of the world also one night in miami and promising young woman uh, which i have seen can recommend though brace yourselves um it's it's something it's uh, it's the uh, directorial debut writing directing debut of actor emerald fennel um and it'll push you but it's worth seeing that's promising young woman stars carrie mulligan who also stars in another limited release this week called The Dig. That is a period drama Mulligan co-stars with Ray Fiennes, and it comes to Netflix on the 29th. MLK FBI is another limited opening this weekend. It's a documentary about the FBI's surveillance and harassment of Martin Luther King Jr. It's based on newly declassified files. Next week on the show, we are going to get to our 2020 wrap party. Talk about all those great moments from the movie year just passed. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Well, Michael, this was a lot of fun. I think it worked out well that uh, News of the World was something for us to chew over this week. So I really appreciate you sitting in. You bet. I appreciate the time, man. All right. We'll see you down the road. We'll see you at the next Trivia Spotting for sure. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. 
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.